welcome to today's Hemp Barons podcast. I have a great educational treat here for you today uh, in that we're bringing Dr. Yakubis Zerkubis, or Dr. Z, as he is known internationally, to explain um, the complexities in the most simple terms possible of this incredible discovery, the endocannabinoid system. I have uh, used the listener's education for my own platform to ask him every possible question I've ever wanted explained and re-explained to me, and so I'm very excited to be able to share uh, this information with everyone today. Uh, Dr. Z Yakubis, as I call him, is an accomplished scientist, innovator, speaker, entrepreneur, but mostly an educator and a very valued friend of mine. So um, just very excited to deliver this info to you. During the last week, I drove with an incredible, wonderful lawyer friend of mine uh, from New York State to Seattle because I moved back to Seattle. Uh, My my belongings, all of my worldly belongings are on their way to me in one of those pods, but uh, my Prius and I and Nicole needed to get our own bodies in the car back here. What an interesting traveling journey that was, because of course we're practicing every possible CDC protocol and guideline as we were driving across the nation and thankful um, it was a good time to drive across because Uh, The hotels are only just now starting to open and they were very sparsely populated and um, we stayed in some of the higher end hotels, which are quite uh, affordable right now, but also practicing some fantastic um, sanitation uh, guidelines and protocols, which were very important to us Um, in different states seem to have different awarenesses about wearing masks. We, of course, always wore a mask out of respect for everybody and also trying to set a good example in various jurisdictions where we saw there were little to no mask wearing. Um, and we'll keep those states to ourselves right now. Just please wear a mask. It's a sign of respect, everybody. Uh, also, Uh, My son, spiral walking in balance, my young baby who's 26 years old, he left today to go from Seattle to Lexington, Kentucky. So we are driving opposite sides of the country here. He will start his one-year MBA at Gatton uh, at the University of Kentucky. So um, practicing all of those same protocols. Such a, a dicey thing to be traveling right now and yet life is moving on um, and my family is moving forward as safely as we can in this transformative and interesting time. In any event, I really hope you get as much as I did out of today's show. It's such a treat to have Dr. Z here explaining uh, one of the most important discoveries in our lifetimes, and that is the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. And so with that, Get ready for a wonderful interview. I'm really excited uh, to bring you yet another incredible interview next week. But in the meantime, please enjoy Dr. Z. And I'm wishing everyone and their family good health and inspiration until we meet again. Well, welcome, Yakubis. It's wonderful to have you on Hemp Barons today. Joy, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. You know, you've always been so impressive. Number one, I first learned about who you are, truly in the professional world, Dr. Zaburkis, um, from your speaking internationally. Clearly, you are brilliant um, in your field. And then secondarily, uh, of the many businesses that you are involved with, Chief Innovation Officer of Merrimed, uh, co founder of Meditoris, which has created that beautiful hemp-centric line of products, Florence. 
that's what really sealed the deal. Not only um, did I already respect you as an intellectual, as a strong and passionate advocate uh, for the delivery uh, on the promise of, of cannabinoids and, and other products, but the most beautiful packaging and fantastic products, Florence, I'll never forget. I got a gorgeous gift bag from you a couple of years ago um, at a hemp conference and savored literally every last drop from the ingestibles to the topicals on down. Um, before we get started, I always like to. That's terrific. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I. I, uh, no, thank I'll... no, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Joy. I'm really humbled. And I really thank you. appreciate uh, all of the remarks. When we, when we see each other, we really see each other. You know how that goes, brother. So I always like to ask Indeed. folks. Indeed. <laughs> I always like to ask folks uh, before we get started. So Obviously, you are a highly educated man with tremendous experience. What brought you into hemp? When did hemp get on your radar? I would say that maybe my relationship with cannabis in general started in the early 90s, just discovering cannabis as a young man and the relationship with hemp um, really began in 2013 when, as a neuroscience professor and researcher, at that time I was doing research using synthetic cannabinoids and also concurrently observing the global legalization of hemp as a crop as well as phytocannabinoids coming onto the mainstream markets around the world. And that really took my interest in, in, in hemp as a, as a crop and the phytocannabinoids that are in hemp primarily because I was neuroscientist, so I primarily was interested in the actions of cannabinoids in the brain. And later, since 2013, it evolved into a ever-winding uh, and ongoing story of uh, hemp. And I'm just happy to be a part of what I call a hemp renaissance. In such a big way and leading the way, in fact. Tell me, what is it? Because now I am curious to know, as a tenured professor at the University of Houston, what, what courses are you teaching or course? I mostly taught neuroscience courses, but I have to point out what is the most relevant for this podcast is in 2019, last year, in the spring of 2019, I taught a whole semester-long seminar series for graduate students on the endocannabinoid system. Uh, so most of my teaching was neuroscience for undergraduate students, for graduate students, as well as research training in the laboratory. So at the University of Houston, I have my own neurophysiology and neuroimaging laboratory. We have trained and graduated other PhD students um, through my laboratory. And um, yeah. So I think that that's the, the, the relationship 
Uh, I forgot your question. <laughs> I have to write down your question. I know this is great because it's it's such a great answer. Are, are it's by the way, as you were talking, you know what's coming up for me is man, gold star, gold star for University of Houston. Your answer was a commercial for University of Houston. In fact, I mean, I'm impressed. I had no idea that University of Houston was really grabbing onto the ECS, the endocannabinoid system, um, in that in that respect, at that level, that's quite impressive. I would say it always comes down to individual PIs or individual professors and there's particular passions for science, a particular passion for a specific molecule or disease that they're following. And, and it really came out of my passion and the not only out of the passion, but also by simple observation that I started including endocannabinoid system and uh, one or two lectures in the endocannabinoid system and phytocannabinoids in the undergraduate neuroscience course as well as in the graduate um, uh, science course portion for neuroscience. But then uh, I realized that that wasn't enough, that if you just go over in one hour or two hours explaining the endocannabinoid system and elements and hemp and, and cannabis and the interactions between the biological chemicals and the human body, it, it is very good because it, it's, it, it changes slightly the opinion of the students. But what was really, for me, interesting is when the graduate students got together for the seminar, they really were not aware of the endocannabinoid system. They were not aware of the role the cannabinoids play in modulating the system. And for the most part, their knowledge was really along the lines of what you hear in in the community that stigmatizes cannabis, that it's not necessarily an, an element of cannabis, uh, like cannabinoids. So what they walked out with is a completely different understanding of what the endocannabinoid system is, how it's involved, and particularly in in, in immune system and inflammation, uh, as well as cancers in the brain and the body. And mission accomplished because four months later, I felt that the students now had a much better grip, understanding as well as giving weight to a system and its components that could be now potentially a part of the research. You know, I, I always know, and, and all of my guests are so wonderful, but, I, you know, I have, uh, I'm tingling. You're, I'm very inspired right now as you're speaking, and I, I, I really want us to get into the endocannabinoid system because the reality is that, that we, we haven't discussed it from a scientific, particularly neuroscientific level, um, and I really want the listeners to get the benefit of your tremendous tutelage, and, and I know full well uh, that you can present this otherwise complex material in a way that the average Joe uh, can understand, and yet before we do, I, I just have to tell you again 
gold star for University of Houston because, brother, it was unfortunately it's not the case that it's just boils down to the passion of the TI or the professor. I have worked with many professors of of state universities who are very impassioned. Andrea Herman, who you well know, um, who started you know the Oregon State University, but. program on hemp, uh, the WSE 266, Wood Science and Engineering. And, um, you know, she's a she's my mentor, one of the, my closest friends on the planet. And uh, and I was blessed to be able to do the legislative piece of that. But guess what happened after three years of teaching that course? All of a the sudden, they told her, Oregon State University, and by the way, God bless them. And they've, they've, this is well over now, but so you're aware all of a sudden, they said to her, you're no longer allowed to teach the agronomy portion of your hemp course, even though that was literally called Hemp Agronomy, a Canadian case study. And they said um, that you are violating that that would violate the school's policy on controlled substances with the Oregon State University cannot be a co-conspirator in in providing the students with an education on how to grow a controlled substance. And she had to hire a lawyer. She got professors from the, you know, associated professor network to send letters and appeal the decision. And the answer was no, 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 until that 2018 farm bill. So in her syllabus, then after several semesters of teaching that course, there was a big hole where she left hemp agronomy, a Canadian case study and said this, we will not be teaching this course because of this policy at this link. And if you want to complain or appeal, send an email to this person. So, you know, it's again amazing that the University of Houston, we're talking about a conservative state, Texas, where your passion was enough for them, brother. And, and you know, there's always so much more at work um, when, as hemp emerges here, so many other, other factors. But what a bonus um, that for you, it was passion. They listened uh, and they let you teach the students about this, whereas at Oregon State University for a few years there, even after hiring a lawyer and appealing, we were we were told you may not make the students aware. That was the language. You may not make the students aware of how to cultivate a controlled substance. Isn't that amazing? It is. Um, I have to tell you that, that, that definitely kudos to the University of Houston, and I hope that we can continue and even expand this. There, because you know, Texas also, as you know, is coming online with a lot of hemp. Uh, hopefully, a lot of hemp this year, if not this year, the next year. But regulatory framework is there at least. And I think you know the difference is that when you talk about cultivation, it is still much more stigmatized. When you talk about the basic science and the uh, neurological and and other pharmacological body components of the endocannabinoid system and the disease, it's it's a lot more palatable for for academia, and I think it's a lot more relevant. And surely after Hemp Farm Bill, the cultivation becomes completely legitimized and completely relevant, too. So I'm glad they have it back on board at the Oregon State. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And of course, leading the way, you probably are well aware of Dr. Jay Noller, who is just an international rock star at this point with hemp. I mean, they've been obviously tremendously supportive of hemp, but that was that was a shocker. That was not a fun time to go through, brother. And uh, yeah, I can understand. Mm-hmm. No, that was that was hard a hard time. 
Um, and, and, you know, especially with Senator Juan, Ron Wyden and Congressman Earl Blumenauer, it was just fascinating. But but in any event, um, let's get into it. Let's let give the... So let me go back to the, to the endocannabinoid. Yes, brother, let's get into it. I, I'm so excited okay. for, the, for the listeners to get well, your the benefit. Right. And what we have to understand is that we are dealing with essentially a 30-year-old discovery that there is this major homeostatic regulatory body system called endocannabinoid system. And it can consist of cannabinoid molecules that are synthesized internally. They're called endocannabinoids. So our own bodies make cannabinoids or endo inside. The cannabinoids are made inside our bodies. These cannabinoids are made by synthesizing enzymes that make them on demand, and then the enzymes that break them down when they're not much needed in the body. And when these molecules and the cannabinoid molecules are made, they target receptors. They're called cannabinoid receptor 1, CB1, and cannabinoid receptor 2. And virtually every organ and cell in human and mammalian bodies and even some of the primitive organisms that live in, in the oceans, they contain components of the endocannabinoid system. Let me repeat that again, that almost virtually every organ and cell in the human body contains components or many or all of the components, non-components of the endocannabinoid system. So CB1 and CB2 receptors and the endocannabinoid system so these receptors are found in the brain, CB1 and CB2 receptors. CB1 receptors are dominating in the brain tissues, but there's also CB2 receptors, and they serve different functions. So in the brain, for example, CB1 receptors serve a function of controlling how neurons communicate with each other. This communication is called neural transmission. So when one neuron in the brain, one brain cell communicates to another neuron, another brain cell, this is called neural transmission. And CB1 receptor activation of that receptor controls this neural transmission and balances the amount of how excited your brain is or how subdued or inhibited your brain is. And CB2 receptors that are not as prevalent in the brain, but they're also there, they serve a different function. Their function in the brain is to control inflammation. And they are mostly found in the brain cells that are called glia cells. They are supportive cells. And these cannabinoid receptors too, or CB2 receptors and glial cells, they control the inflammatory response in the brain. There are these inflammatory molecules that get released. They're called cytokines. And sometimes in the media, you will even hear lately the cytokine storms or the inflammatory storms. And you hear that lately because it's actually related to what COVID is doing and causing that inflammation. But CB2 receptors control the inflammation. Now, in the rest of the body, outside of the brain, CB2 receptors will be found through, like I mentioned, almost virtually all of the organs, but very much concentrated in the organs that are involved in the immune response. And 
in this in this in this in this way we have this very intricate network this very intricate system that spans from the brain into the body and even into the skin because we have cannabinoid uh, receptors in the nerve endings in the skin and plays a, a major role and that role is regulating and controlling the balance of the body so there's a certain level of endocannabinoids inside the body that get produced on a, let's say, just a steady state or, you know, a regular state of being. And if the brain gets stressed, if the body gets stressed, if there is an infection, the endocannabinoid production goes up on demand. In fact, this system is so important that this system the increases in the cannabinoids are noted in the breast milk. And it is thought to promote the suckling behavior of, 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 of a newborn. And it is also interesting that CB1 receptors not only control neurotransmission, but one of the main targets of the uh, psychoactive cannabinoid in hemp and in cannabis is THC, a tetrahydrocannabinol. And the target CB1 receptors and causes the euphoric effect. So we, we know that hemp doesn't contain as much of the psychoactive tetrahydrocannabinol, but that's what it does. It causes that high effect often is also described in literature as a, as a bliss. In fact, one of the endocannabinoids is called anandamide. And that word, Ananda, it stands for, for Sanskrit, for uh, ancient Indian language, basically, for bliss molecule. And so that's important to keep in mind uh, that, that naturally, then you will say, okay, then, then these endocannabinoids should then cause a bliss in your brain, too. And that's exactly what they do. They improve our moods. They make us happier, endocannabinoids. With exercise, we now know that endocannabinoids, that there's, there's no endorphins. There's no, endogen, there's no endogenous like morphine molecules that are produced. There is endocannabinoids. And the endocannabinoid is what the runners now we know experience as the runner's high or the runner's bliss. So the release of endocannabinoids and uh, activation of cannabinoid system and CD1 receptors in the brain, giving that happy boost feeling after a heavy workout, which is one of the best ways to stimulate the endocannabinoid system. Absolutely. And, and it was so great to hear. One, I have a, a running list of some things I wanted to make sure that I ask you about. And of course, as a as a mother who gave birth to two children naturally at home and breastfed, particularly my youngest for several years, uh, breast milk was absolutely on that list. Uh, that is, you know, the, the, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about that in terms of in, in the context of endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome. And I have some other questions here that I, I would love uh, for you to be able to answer, but could we talk for a moment about a world where we don't aren't aware of the endocannabinoid system? We're only just becoming aware of it, even though, of course, as you know, it's, it's discovered 30 years ago. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Rafael Mishulam. Um, but 
you know, it's so, so important. And then I often say on this show, it's literally this discovering this in our lifetime is like discovering that the earth is round and not flat to understand that we have more of these cannabinoid receptors in our brain than neurotransmitters. And, and could you correct me on that statement? If I'm wrong about that, do we indeed have more cannabinoid receptors yeah, uh, in our brain? Yes, I, I, I do need to correct you on this because what we do have is the CB1 receptor, the cannabinoid receptor 1. A lot of times it's, it's scientifically is, is referred as G-protein coupled receptor. So the, the G-coupled protein, G-protein coupled receptors, they're not channels. They don't, they don't conduct ions. That's the difference. But this CB1 receptor is the most prevalent G-protein coupled receptor in the brain. So there's, in fact, a lot more neurotransmitters because they're much smaller molecules and their, their life cycle is much faster than these receptor proteins. That's what they are. They're essentially proteins in the plasma membrane and the cell membranes. So these receptors are G-protein-coupled receptors. Cannabinoid receptor 1 is the most prevalent in the brain. So it's absolutely... One of the one of the giant and very important receptors in the brain. It's one of the most important systems in the brain and the body. But I want to caution the community. Is I want to caution that let's not all of a sudden forget that this system, the endocannabinoid system, is not the only major regulatory and homeostatic body system, and that this endocannabinoid system doesn't function on its own. It is intricately involved with other body systems. So whether we can call it as the on button for the switchboard, I'm not so certain. What I'm certain about, and I will argue, that it is one of the most important controls on the switchboard. And what the on button is, it's probably just giving birth. And the off button is turning off. <laughs> yes, yes, no, indeed. And so, and thank you so much for that. I, I, I'm so grateful for that. I'm law and regulatory expert and, and, you know, so great with grain. But when we get into the science of the ECS, you know, you, you pick your poison, you pick your area of expertise. So, so just very blessed to have you um, saying that, uh, uh, correcting me on that, because it's something I've been quite curious about. Um, so breast milk, we, we, we born into this world. We have no idea we're breastfeeding our children as much as I loved cannabis. And, and like you, I got involved with cannabis really in, in the late 80s, but had owned a hemp store in New York by the early 90s. Um, and so here I was breastfeeding my children because I knew I wanted to do things just as naturally and healthily as I could, but having literally no awareness at all that I'm delivering cannabinoids, endocannabinoids to them in the breast milk, and, and then having even less awareness that after I stopped breastfeeding, that they were no longer getting that infusion of cannabinoids, although I appreciate that they're made on demand. Having said that, how do we reconcile making endocannabinoids on demand with an endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome? Could you speak to that? Uh, absolutely. Now, I have a, a holistic view when I think about the endocannabinoid system and the human interaction with hemp in general. I think that we have been deprived of this plant and the interaction and nutritional elements about a hundred years ago. 
there was a significant, uh, hemp was a significant part of diet, of culture, of nutrition in many different regions, not everywhere around the world, but in many different regions, because there's obviously geographical, uh, botanical uh, specialty plants and preferences that grow. But so now we were deprived of that relationship. Even if it was on the textile level and it was on the clothing or the housing level, we were still deprived. That means our environment and how we co-involved with this plan to start with all of a sudden abruptly was changed by laws, not by nature, but by laws. Uh, then a hundred years later, almost, you know, the eradication of the hemp and cannabis in the te- states of Texas, for example, started in 1919. So 2019, Texas came online again with hemp. A hundred years later, we are reintroducing these elements. What we're talking about is the endocannabinoid system elements that endocannabinoids that are in the breast milk that are naturally produced after birth, too. This is a very interesting topic for me because we were always taught that it's the dopamine system and this the dopamine reward that keeps driving um, children into, into breastfeeding and is an important part of, of, of the whole early interaction with the mother. But it's actually also the cannabinoids that are driving this. What is making you hungry? What is giving you munchies? It's the endocannabinoids that give you munchies. If the dopamine gives you satisfaction, that's because you had something already. that ha- You had something nutritious, so you had something sweet. So you could argue that internally, this is the initial drive for the infant to get the endocannabinoids from the mother. Now, how does that relationship continue? Interesting. If you stop breastfeeding and the child doesn't have endocannabinoids anymore, then obviously in this age, we are kind of introducing some of these elements back into our diet. And when I say I look at it holistically, I look at it holistically from the co-evolution of hemp and human. I look at it also from the fact that we have to see that hemp is one of the most sustainable crops, especially in this environment, in this changing world could be one of the saviors, could be one of the saviors that we will see cannabinoids, micro-levels of cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids and omega amino acids and vitamin D and carotenoids coming from hemp seeds and from the hemp plant entering not only into the human diet, but into the feed, into the livestock feed, into, into making the environment for the animals and for the humans better. And when you asked about the endocannabinoid system deficiency, I always wondered if all of a sudden this interruption of our relationship with hemp and access to hemp and uh, criminalization of cannabis and criminalization of marijuana, if it, if it didn't contribute to what we call the endocannabinoid deficiency syndromes, and whether these syndromes are early syndromes that are related more to the developmental and um, behavioral uh, psychological disorders like autism uh, syndrome-like spectrum, uh, or if they're related more to the adults. If you were to read through Dr. Ethan Russo's work, who is also a giant in this field, and 
has really pioneered a lot of thinking about endocannabinoid deficiencies. And in his opinion, that I would largely agree endocannabinoid deficiencies, especially in older generation, express themselves as hyperalgesias or too much pain. And and we're talking about pain from fibromyalgia. We're just talking about regular wear and tear of joints and muscles and just, you know, all, all elderly aging pains. Uh, and the endocannabinoid deficiencies seem to be really associated with this kind of hyperalgesias and increased inflammation in the body. So Justice, does that mean then that we should really reintroduce these elements into 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 the children's diets, into the newborns' diets. I'm not talking about psychoactive THC here. I'm talking about hemp elements from hemp, micro doses levels of all of the goodness that hemp offers. As phytocannabinoids, CBD, CBG, CBC, all of these is just one. All of it. And if we were not meant yeah. to have a relationship with this plant, we would not have an endocannabinoid system and it would not control homeostasis. But before we go there, I, I want to touch upon inflammation, which is the source of all evil, <laughs> the source of so many physical problems, right? <laughs> you could say money and greed is the root of all evil. Well, inflammation is the root of all pain, practically, right, on, on some level. Um, and I and I want the listeners to know, and then if you could elaborate, uh, just folks who are learning about it for the first time, when you when you discussed at the beginning of the interview that, that CBD... Uh, the CBD2 receptors control inflammation in the brain. I really want to make it clear to folks, no, it's it's the brain that controls inflammation throughout the whole body. So these CB2 receptors, we're talking about controlling information, inflammation throughout the entire body. It's just done from the command center of the brain. Could you elaborate? Absolutely. So you do have command centers in the brain that increase what is called the inflammatory cytokine release. And this would be um, a lot of times mediated by glial cells and cannabinoid receptors to CB2 receptors. There's also the brain controls a lot of things, the stress response. And then the cannabinoid system is very intricately linked with another neuro body regulatory system called neuroendocrine system. The neuroendocrine system releases the stress hormone cortisol. And that, again, starts the signal comes from the brain, and then it travels down low to the lower centers and to the brainstem, and it then interacts with other organs in the body. And um, this uh, it can interact with, with, with adrenal, with, with kidneys, uh, in the case of the cortisol. And so, yes, the regulation of cortisol from the brain, the regulation of inflammation from the brain, is very, very important. And it's not to say that you cannot have a local inflammation because you, you can have a local injury in the periphery and have local inflammatory responses. But if you're talking about a more a whole body response that is uh, controlled and mediated and largely is controlled by these brain centers. Thank you. And and the big thing also that I wanted to make sure, and, and particularly as we conclude here, you use the term um, homeostasis. 
homeostatic regulatory system. Could you explain to the listeners what homeostasis is and and it's and how uh, the endocannabinoid system interacts with with homeo with our with the homeostatic regulatory system or homeostasis? Homeostasis is essentially maintaining the correct balance for the correct state. Uh, of activity and function that is needed for the brain cells or other cells and organs in the body and body systems in general. Is so, it correct? Is, uh, it correct? Is, is it a correct way to sort of describe it this way, Yakubas? Um, that we might say, listen, your your blood has to pump, your heart has to pump, your 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 lungs have to breathe. You, everything needs to be working in there, even as you go throughout your day dealing with various external stressors, whether it's an extreme change in temperature or a massively stressful situation or a domestic violence, you know, eruption that occurs, your body still has to keep on doing its thing, even as you handle all of those other stressors. And and it's homeostasis, it's that homeostatic regulatory system that allows the inside to continue doing what it needs to do while we continue with any number of external uh, elements. Is, there a, is that Absolutely. correct? Absolutely. It's, it's trying with, with, it, with the homeostasis and homeostatic systems and regulation of homeostasis, trying to reach that optimal, the condition of, of, the condition of optimal functioning for the organism. And you know what the best way, sometimes I think of a very simple analogy, it's... Uh, uh, temperature control in the room. Okay, it's uh, it's 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 a it's an AC if you're in a hot climate. Air conditioning. You set air conditioning to seventy degrees. If it goes to seventy one, your air conditioning kicks in. So it's equivalent to stress response goes up, inflammation goes up, your endocannabinoid levels goes up, your endocannabinoid system turns on to balance it. Then. The cooling system kicks in and lowers the temperature to 70 degrees. If it goes up again, it just tries to maintain that optimal functioning level. And for 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 many of us, it is it is functioning normally. But imagine if the homeo, uh, if if the if the AC control uh, is uh, if the temperature control is all of a sudden broken, it becomes very uncomfortable in there. It becomes too hot, or if you're talking about cold climate, it becomes too cold. And so that would be the situation in which the homeostasis is no longer able to keep up with the changes in the body, and they can, the 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 functioning is no longer optimal. So you get set up in this kind of a heightened or stressed level of functioning. So we're sitting here saying homeostatic homeostasis is is the regulator, and it's the endocannabinoid system that is regulating that system. Is that correct to say? It is one of the major homeostasis regulators. Yes. But it is not the only one. It is. And just for the listeners and for me, I'm using you listeners. I'm using you all as an excuse. I'm literally just sucking all of this information in. Could you give us an example of one or two other regulators of homeostasis in addition to the endocannabinoid system? So I would say uh, it's, it's, it's many systems that are intricately involved in building the overall homeostasis of the body. 
And it really involves many of these systems will have, again, the receptors, the control centers, and the effectors and the effector organs. And I mentioned just previously neuroendocrine system. There is the system that is controlling the stress response. And that is the system that if, if you have occasional stress, it produces cortisol. And it has also very much like a thermostat-like regulation. It's called negative feedback regulation, where it then tames down the amount of cortisol to its normal level. Now, if the stressor is persistent, right, then you get into a potential state of chronic stress and your cortisol levels are through the roof and they're not being controlled. And that also very much interacts with the inflammation and the immune state of the body. As we know, stress can affect a lot of things. So let's think about this. Let's think about this box that's a temperature control in the room, but it actually has several circuits in it. So one of the circuits is endocannabinoid system. Another circuit is neuroendocrine system, and you could have another like thermal regulation system involved in that. You could have a sexual regulation system involved in that. It's also part of the homeostasis, not just you know, not just one system, but really interaction of many systems. I cannot possibly be more grateful for all of this, and and I'm pressing the oil out of out of you here, and I, and I understand that. But and this is a a question or an issue that Dr. Rousseau feels strongly about. As you know, he's an industry leader, as you are. Um, and I was in Seattle for 21 years, and I'm actually on my way to move back there. And as you may know, uh, Dr. Rousseau is from that area. So when you live in Seattle, you get the benefit of him being wonderful and keynoting events and doing, you know, small uh, teaching uh, presentations. So and it's wonderful to have him. And I usually and I noticed you use the word psychoactive, um, whereas Dr. Rousseau has made a point, and I generally do as well, and, and I do a lot of reviewing of law and regulation, and I always try to redline this this issue because the word non-psychoactive seems to be applied to CBD in law, in regulation, in medical texts, so on and so forth. Now, And Dr. Rousseau would say, listen, it's not only psychoactive. I mean, it, it modulates mood centers and works with PTSD or depression. So obviously there's some psychoactivity there. He says it's not only psychoactive, it's even psychotropic, but what CBD isn't is intoxicating. So I always try to tell people to use the term non-intoxicating versus non-psychoactive. What, uh, clearly, there are hairs being split there, and you're as brilliant as Dr. Rousseau. What are your thoughts around splitting those hairs using those terms? Yes, they need to be split, and it is correct. I would say that coffee is psychotropic. I wake up in the morning and coffee helps me release glutamate receptors. It affects my neurotransmission of the brain and has physiological, neurophysiological, psychological effect on me. It's psycho, uh, psychoactive. It's not psychotropic. So caffeine and coffee is psychoactive. If you talk about CBD, it's psychoactive. Because why is it used to control epilepsy and seizures and Many different things that are related to neurological disorders that are coming up now in the in the research. It is definitely psychoactive. I'm not so certain that there's a psychotropic activity of CBD on its own. And 
There's definitely psychotropic activity from THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. But I, you know, talking to not just uh, Dr. Ethan Russo, but other practicing neurologists and other practicing doctors, that's where there's a bit of a split of an opinion. It may be thought that the first time a person consumes CBD may have a somewhat of an interesting psychotropic effect, not just psychoactive effect. And that is still a question. The reason why I say that that is still a question because there has never been studied done with the people that are testing or trying CBD for the first time, whether they're using isolate CBD or they're using full spectrum that actually contains up to 0.3% THC by federal regulation. And so that 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 0.3% THC in combination with CBD may be psychotropic. The hair needs to be split definitely. It is, it is psychoactive. Caffeine is psychoactive. CBD is psychoactive. THC is psychoactive and psychotropic, and it can be intoxicating as well. Uh, Thank you for scratching that itch so much so, and I'll shoot you. you no <laughs> doubt you've seen it. It came out probably about three or four years ago. Yeah, I'm sure it was in your field of awareness. I'll grab that little piece. And it was actually a, a piece that Dr. Rousseau wrote a few years ago called, I think it was uh, Myths, Busting Myths about CBD, where he discussed this, this psychotropic effect. And I'll have to go back and, and refresh why it is that Ethan um, considered it that. And, and I'll shoot it your way and get it back into your field of awareness. But uh, I can't even imagine being a fly on the wall when you incredible intellectual candidates get together and discuss these things. But I I can tell well, you that we all together. Are so let's do it all together. Yes, I'll after you move. <laughs> I can. I'll be looking forward to it ten ways from Sunday, and and just so grateful that we got the benefit of of all of your expertise here today. I can't wait to have you back. Yukubis Zavirkis, you are something else, brother. And if you want to know, listeners, how to um, look at the, the various products and projects uh, that Yukubis is involved in, please go to our website, MJ Bulls. have all of his links there available to you. Uh, Yukubis, thank you so much for being with us today. Stay healthy, my brother. I cannot wait till we're gathering again, and we'll certainly have you back on Hemp Barons again. Thank you, Joy so much. Thank you for what you do. It was a pleasure to have this conversation. I look forward to seeing you in the near future and definitely being back on the podcast. It was my pleasure. Oh, thank you. Wishing you the greatest success, brother. Good night. I'm Larry Mishkin. I'd like to invite you to join Jim, Marty, and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other cannabis industry deadheads and jam band aficionados about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday at mjbulls.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. 
Scope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.